Hi, I'm Shireen Gorbani, and you're listening to Both Sides of the Aisle. Normally, we have Natalie Gochner with us, who represents the political center, but, but we, we are, are unsupervised. We are unsupervised today. So I'm a former county council person, um, and... I uh, am representing the left. I certainly consider myself a progressive. And who are you? I do consider you a progressive. <laughs> I'm John Dougal, state auditor, and I'm here on the right. Yes. Um, and uh, there's so much happening globally, nationally, locally. So we're going to dive right into um, some national news. Um, what's what's standing out to you in the news stories this week, John? Well, one of the key things I think was getting a lot of attention was clearly we had this uh, bill come out in regards to border security yeah, or alleged border security as the debate might have it on the right. So, you know, let's, let's talk about that. What are your, what were your takeaways? What do you like? What, what are you concerned with? Yeah. So this is a um, long anticipated, very interesting piece of legislation. It has been, I believe my entire lifetime, um, I'm in my forties, early forties that we've really seen. So you're not that old. Meaningful um, immigration policy. Um, so this Folks is. Folks say since the, since the mid eighties. Since the mid eighties. So almost as long as I have been alive. Um, and there is a, it, it's an interesting moment because I think typically you anticipate that either when you have a full control, so Republicans in the White House, you know, um, House and Senate with significant Which is majorities, a dream, isn't it? <laughs> or or Democrats, that you would see finally some movement on immigration. But we're at an interesting time where we have a divided um, House uh, run by Republicans, Senate uh, just slightly run. Uh, both have very slim majorities, but uh, Senate is run by Democrats, and then we've got, of course, Joe Biden in the White House. But one of the things that I think is happening in the broader sense in communities across the nation is that immigration really is an issue where people want to see action. And I do think that- And especially on border security, borders, even more so than immigration, that the concept of border security has really been heightened from my perspective over especially the last few years. I think that's true. But I will say, I think a big part of that is a, a particular media narrative that we're told, right? Um, and I think we can get into some of those narratives, the veracity of those kinds of claims that we're hearing and, and maybe some of the untruths that are being perpetuated. But I do also think when you kind of talk to everyday people, their sense that this is just a largely broken system, whether it is um, people who are trying to run businesses here who cannot find enough people to work jobs, whether that's in construction or in kitchens across uh, uh, hospitality across our own state, right? Or when you think about people who hear these stories or have family members um, that simply cannot get their families reunified, that have these long waits on immigration processes if they're trying to do it legally. So we know that this is a broken system on many fronts. Um, but there is, I think, an interesting moment where we're seeing this legislation come forward. I believe the text was released just on Sunday of, Sun, the, of Sunday the actual night. bill. It's something six, seven o'clock Eastern time, Sunday night. And the um, key negotiators, I would say from my side generally, Kirsten Sinema, um, Arizona, who's now an independent, but ran as a Democrat initially. Um, Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy is quite progressive. Um, and then on your side, who's coming to the table? James Langford. Who is... How would you characterize his politics? Historically, he's been viewed as very conservative. Quite conservative, yeah. So what we're seeing here is a bill that proposes basically caps that would allow the border to shut down. But it also provides a number of other uh, opportunities, I think, to improve systems that are broken. The wait time on asylum, so to increase um, the rapidity, how quickly people are processed with asylum claims. There are additional, uh, certainly there's additional funding for um, border security more broadly. Um, there are also, I believe, a whole set of different work permits that can be issued, especially in the asylum process, so that when people arrive that they are able to work if they are granted asylum. Um, tell me some of the things that stand out 
out to you? So, so a couple of things that stand out to me is one of the concerns is, is we talk about catch and release, which is the concept which, which migrants claiming asylum, they're, they're noted, told to come back to court. Sometimes that's, you know, four to 10 years. Yeah. That's a long time to say, you know, you get to go establish yourself in the country. Without hope. Work, without the ability to work. With the hope that they'll actually come back to court. Right. And, and I know this bill talks about basically 90 days. I have some skepticism whether they will actually truly process it in 90 days. But I come from the perspective of, to me, this should be streamlined. This should be days to weeks. We shouldn't be looking to house or catch and release folks for even three months. Yeah. That just seems like a long period of time. Yeah. And stuff. And there's certain gates that that make sure the process doesn't go too quick, which which causes me concern. One of the other dynamics is I was looking at the bill and I'm I I, I read through it first pass last night, so all three hundred and seventy pages of it. Yeah. Um it looks like unaccompanied minors are not counted against the various caps that are in there. Right. And so therefore it's like, well, why are they excluded? Why are they exempted from the caps? And when I talk about the caps, it's it's you know at 4,000 migrants per day on average over a one-week period of time, then the secretary may close the border. Yeah. If you reach an average of 5,000 per day, he shall or she shall close the border. Yeah. And, and one of the dynamics I have is, is okay, if you're going to close the border, there's another part that says, but you can't close it in the first year more than 270 days out of 365. So, so why do we have all those other days that we're not closing the border if we're hitting these limits. Right. And, and, and why is that? Um, so this is where it looks like in one part it's supposedly cracking down. So it, it's got a good framework for some aspects, but it looks like it's got some loopholes. Are we really going to hit 90 days? What happens if we're not hitting 90 days? For me, there's some concern that's what's taking place. And then why do we say we're closing the border, but then we don't really close the border for extended periods of time? In the third year, they can only close the border for about half the year. Yeah. And and I think as we talked last week, we were all in agreement of needing to know who's entering the country. That's that's one of the key things we can all agree on is we need to know who's entering the country. Yeah, I think that's right. So from my perspective, this bill leaves a lot to be desired when we think about things um, kind of broadly in the conversation around immigration reform or just the fact that we, you know, I, I certainly agree that we're a country of, of laws, but we're also a country of immigrants, right? And so what is it or how are we dealing with so many of the people who are already here, I think about Dreamers, right, DACA, there's not really anything to address that in this bill. Yeah, I didn't see anything There's about nothing. That. Um, so these are, there are some real shortcomings from my perspective, but I would also say this to me feels like a return to some functionality. Um, do you think that we're going to see this bill passed? What do you think? Well, let me ask you a question before okay. we go there. <laughs> One of the things that surprises me is, is I've heard a few interviews from President Biden. Yeah. And he's sounding very different than he did a few months ago. Okay. He's sounding much more militant about, I'm going to close the border and give me the authority to close the border. And I would say he's almost sounding kind of like President Trump was Yeah. Uh, in regards to various border aspects. What is your read there? Yeah, what is your I would perception? say it's a pretty, well, okay. So I do think he's being much stronger on it. And I do think he's asking for tools to address what we largely agree is a, is a 
dysfunctional system. Some would say crisis, right? Um, but I, I would say it's a long way to go between where Biden is right now on his language and the kind of language that Trump used when he talked about people coming to our border. I think there's a deeper sense of humanity and how Biden is approaching this. But I do think there is certainly a desire to say, if you get this done, I will use these tools to try to address this problem. But what we have on the other side, right, is... Well, before the, you go there, let okay. me... Let me yeah. I, I saw uh, Senator Cinema yeah. on Sunday on, on one of the morning shows, and, and she was talking about the critical need to secure the border and how the current administration is failing and what it's doing. I think she was also taking Congress to task on its failings sure. in regards to that. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the broader bill, will this will this pass? Uh, there's a lot of hurdles in this. Yeah. I mean, so and, four and months in the works before it finally gets released, and a lot of people felt like they were out of loop. A lot of senators felt like only three people were working on it. The rest of it. us just barely saw it. You know, um, Senator Schumer saying we're gonna we're gonna basically vote on it Wednesday is the message they're getting, which sounds right. really rushed for this. Okay, we just release it now. We're gonna rush it through. Sure. And, and clearly, folks in the House feel like they're out of the loop. Um, well, Mike Johnson has already. Said- yeah, it's dead on, dead yeah. on arrival. So, and part of that, I think, is a response to what former President Donald Trump is saying. And for me, this is the absolute definition of politics. I, I do believe that Trump needs chaos at the border to be able to run on. I think he requires it. And so he's basically saying to Republicans, um, if you do not allow me to continue this problem to fester, then there are going to be punishments. And and some of those punishments are already showing up. I, I do believe the Republican senator who was the main negotiator has been censured for working on it, right? Like there's all this kind of punitive response. Um, I don't well, know. I'm well, disappointed. One of, my, one of my complaints with Speaker Johnson is, yeah. is for him wringing his hands and acting like, you know, they've been left out of the loop. For goodness sake, you're the House of Representatives. Yeah. Form your own working group. Form your own proposal. Don't sit there and whine about this. Come to the table with your own proposal and and, and battle the Senate, battle yeah. the president on it rather than just sitting there complaining. It's true. Well, we've spent a lot of time here. So I'm going to shift a little bit to kind of this broader backdrop, which is presidential politics. So we are heading into an election. We've got um, Nevada Kind of, we're recording on Tuesday, so kind of today, kind of on Thursday. What's going kind on of, there? Kind, really, of, kind of confusing. We've, <laughs> really we've got uh, on Tuesday we have a presidential primary, primary. and on Thursday we have a caucus, That's a presidential right. caucus. Uh, historically, Nevada uh, didn't have a very good turnout for their caucus meetings, so they instituted, I think it was in 2021, a primary. Now we end up with different folks. I think Nikki Haley's on the primary ballot. Donald Trump's on the caucus, caucus ballot. So it's kind of a little confusing what's really going to shake out of there. But uh, those are the dynamics. And then we'll look for, we have, we have the uh, uh, South Carolina presidential, Democratic presidential primary that, that Joe Biden, I think, got 96% of the vote. That's kind of right. a landslide there. <laughs> landslide. Go Joe. No wonder he wanted South Carolina to go first. But uh, we'll have the South Carolina Republican primary coming up really soon. I'm not sure why they didn't have the same day, but yeah, that's right. And then we are just a month out from Super Tuesday. So a lot is going to be happening in this space. But um, I I guess I would just say we're going to move from this conversation on national politics, bringing things right down to the local in our second segment. Um, But I am Shireen Gorbani, and you've been listening to both sides of the aisle. Stay tuned. I'm John Dougal on the right. 
And I'm Shireen Gorbani on the left. And we're unsupervised. Typically we're supervised, not today. But you're listening to both sides of the aisle. So we've been talking a lot about national news and the border. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we also had our governor, Spencer Cox, um, join 14 other governors in Texas vowing to protect the border. Tell me just a, a quick kind of read on what you saw happening there. Well, wh- what I see is Texas feeling like they're getting inundated, that the federal government's not listening to them. A bunch of other Republican governors were coming down there to witness firsthand what's taking place and, and sharing in that concern that basically the federal government needs to step up and do its job when it comes to border security. If not, the states are going to step up and do something. Yeah, that's right. So I know that he said that basically you could walk through downtown Salt Lake City and see the impacts of what's happening at the border here in our own city. Um, But we did get some interesting news from Salt Lake City. Uh, Crime is down um, across Salt Lake City, which is good to know. And I think it's also really important for listeners to understand fentanyl is a crisis in this country. It absolutely is. Drugs, drugs. Drugs generally. We lose too many people in Utah and across this nation to drugs. But the way the drugs enter the border is, or across our border is typically not in the way that this kind of... um, rhetoric describes, right? Like very often these are moved through in much more sophisticated manners and it's not people who are just presenting at the border to cross. Um, Would you agree with that general understanding that drugs aren't just flowing across our border with people who are seeking? Well, there's different threats at the border. Clearly, clearly there's terrorist threats, there's drug cartel threats, there's migrant threats. And and we've heard about drug subs and other things like that, or drugs getting shipped in uh, cargo containers and other things. So drugs are entering our country any of a number of ways. And, but fundamentally, it also comes down to, for some reason, uh, Americans drive the demand for drugs yeah. because of their use. Yeah. If we didn't have the demand or we uh, legalized other drugs, then demand would reduce for cross-border shipment of drugs. Yeah. So when I see a display like this of our governor going down to the border and, and you know making a statement about the impact of drugs in our community, I, of course, am also looking then to our legislature to see, are we seeing bills? Are we seeing priorities around um, drug treatment centers, making sure that people have the kind of support that they need to get to get clean? Um, and frankly, that's not always been the well, highest. We stigmatize folks. You bet you, we have. you have an addiction. Yeah. You can't talk about that. And you might be criminally prosecuted rather than this is an illness. Let's get you treated. Yeah, that's right. And I would love to see our state investing more there. We've seen some good movement there, but there's a long way to go. Um, our governor's also gotten into a little bit of a, um, I would say, interesting moment. Uh, it is Black History Month, and um, it's pretty typical. I, I would say it's sort of um, often it feels a little hollow, but we see politicians very regularly making a statement on Black History Month or Native Peoples, you know, Indigenous Peoples Days or whatever it may be. Um, But he sent out a a tweet that said, you know, we honor the resilience, courage and contributions that African-Americans have made to our state and nation. We celebrate black communities and remain committed to improving access to opportunity. As you can imagine, this did not go well, given the uh, very recent signing of the anti-DEI legislation with really no comment. Um, And in fact, him getting into quite a back and forth with our, uh, you know, institutions of higher education around the issue of diversity, equity and inclusion. And I I think this is really, for me, a moment where I would ask people to think very sincerely about how little it means to post (laughs) a statement like that um, when your actions betray the notion that you're trying to convey in that way. Um, Just a word of caution, I would say, for politicians generally. I find it very irritating. Well, and I get part of the dynamic. The DEI agenda, from my perspective, has run off the rails and and doesn't fully accomplish what people claim that it accomplishes. But I think when it comes to Black History Month or other things like that, you know, given my background, I need to be sensitive that I don't fully understand the experiences 
that uh, uh, others have gone through yeah. and the challenges in their life and, and what they've overcome. I can look at Martin Luther King and appreciate uh, his vision, his leadership and stuff like that, but I need to be cautious because I don't fully understand because I didn't walk in his shoes. Yeah. You know, a little humbleness and a little humility can go a long way in these in these moments. Um, I, and I do think it's something that I w- wish that we had more of in our politics. I um, had mentioned to John before this that I, I do a pretty good job of sharing local news on my personal Instagram account and have been sharing just a lot of updates around what was happening with the trans. I've been watching your TikTok videos no. and they're not coming you know through. I don't, you know I don't TikTok. <laughs> um, but there's there's quite a bit to say about what is happening with the anti-DEI legislation and the trans bathroom bill. I just want to give a shout out to the people who have contacted me personally and I think to all of the families that are impacted. It's really difficult for me to live in a state where what for me um, – was really a a fake crisis that was perpetuated around this notion that the people were largely unsafe in locker rooms in different places. And so we had this backlash, this anti-trans legislation passed, signed into law. And what I'm hearing from trans people is that this has actually created a very real crisis for them. And I just want to say that I, I think everybody in the state deserves safety, deserves to be treated with respect. And when we see legislation like this continue to roll forward, that I've said this before, but when we're in a culture war, there really are people who are caught in the crossfire of that. And um, I just want to let people know that I think we all deserve better and that we deserve a kinder and more humble, perhaps a more um, humility-filled uh, approach to our lawmaking. Um, but uh, and I was th- even trying to throw you a lifeline about jumping over to social media companies yeah, and stuff well, we like can, that. Yeah, we can so. talk about that too. So I, I think that's a place where we see a lot of the division in our in our um, kind of body politic and also just, you know, between us and our neighbors. But what we had uh, in at the national level, a hearing where we had Mark Zuckerberg get up and apologize to people who had lost children and had been, you know, the lives had been seriously impacted by the impact of social media. And then we also have Utah trying to lead in this space um, last year, passing legislation that would create further restrictions on uh, social media platforms, especially as it comes to minors. But what are you seeing kind of on the landscape happening at the local level now? So what I see happening in Utah is, one, they delayed the implementation of the bill. I'm hearing rumblings that they might be repealing the bill just because of uh, First Amendment speech and and, and constitutional concerns. Um, clearly, there's a part when it comes to social media companies, it's like, okay, where are parents in regards to what their children and their teens are doing? Um, but clearly, I'm also hearing the concern from others that are social media companies have intentionally been altering their algorithms to prey on people. Mm-hmm. And so that clearly is concerning. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of faith in Congress in weighing in on these things. Too often, I think these hearings are more for show than actually to drive substantive change. Yeah. Um, sometimes, I've, to be blunt, I think it's a way for them to shake down and get more campaign contributions from these various companies yeah. than it really is to protect people. And Why I would... always caution folks to say, buyer beware. Don't trust that the government is going to help you or protect you. You know, they might, but assume that they're not, even though they claim that they are. Right, right. 
Um, well, let's jump from that to another piece of local legislation. So this is new. Um, this would say that citizen-led ballot measures may be harder to pass. Um, and the idea here is um, this is a, a pair of bills sponsored by Representative Jason Kyle out of Huntsville. Um, the representative is suggesting that we would need a 60% yes vote from citizens on any ballot initiative that seeks to raise taxes or create a new tax, while most other ballot initiatives would only need a majority. Tell me, give me your read on this. So there's always this concern, one, when it comes to taxes, making sure there's a heightened bar to get something passed. The other dynamic, though, when you have initiatives is the concern that is, okay, does it really represent the views of the public? Just because you had a majority vote across the state doesn't mean it represents the positions of all the legislators and their districts. Mm. Uh, In the past, I've actually suggested a, a concept, which is maybe we should have you know, one, I have concerns with just governing by initiative. I've moved here from California and watched the dynamics out there that's concerning to me. But if we're going to have an initiative, maybe it needs to pass, one, in a majority of the House districts, two, in a majority of the Senate districts, and then three, statewide, mm-hmm. because then we can check the boxes and say, it's the equivalent of passing the House, the Senate, and the governor. Mm. So I would say- and, we, It gets rid of that question. Yeah. So I would say we already have a pretty laborious method by which citizen ballot uh, initiatives make the ballot at all, right? The signature gathering has become more complicated over the years. There are higher thresholds and, and greater restrictions in place to make that more complicated. I think when I see things like this, what I think is this is basically just a, a, an ongoing effort to try to really uh, consolidate power with, a, with the legislature. And to me, I say, if you want to do that, let, let's start talking about you winning all of your races by 60%. Like, what? why would we be moving these numbers around kind of arbitrarily? Maybe we should have a 60% state. I don't know. I don't think actually that's a good idea. But what I do think it is, is indicative of a society that's moving away from wanting to have people get into processes and to move things forward. I mean, a simple example of this is when we think about the way that our ballot initiatives work versus in many other places, um, it is a, uh, it's not a, a constitutional amendment, it's, it's creating a law, right? And then what we've seen in the past is that when we have these referendums that are these initiatives, citizen-led initiatives, that they often come to the legislature. And when we think about the things like um, access to medical marijuana or better boundaries, then the legislature just decides to do something else anyway. So to me, this seems like just kind of another effort to uh, decrease the public's uh, <laughs> participation. But, and you threw two words in there. Let me flag. Okay. So an initiative, just for folks to understand, this is passing a new law. A referendum is the legislature passed a law and we want to undo, undo it. Undo it, right. And, and I'm one of those, I'm always concerned about an initiative, but I welcome referendum. Oh, interesting. Okay, I like it. Because I, I like the public to have veto, but I have a lot of concern when just somebody's going to run an initiative to create new New laws. New laws. Well, I'm grateful for them. I'm glad we have Medicaid expansion. I'm glad that we have medical marijuana in our state and and others. So really quickly, I want to talk about another piece of legislation that I don't know if it's going to get much movement, but... What are the odds? Yeah, what are the odds? So we're talking about the lottery. Lottery has been illegal in, in Utah since statehood, and a lawmaker is trying to move forward on the idea that Utahns want to gamble. So this I is... I got represent- five bucks says it doesn't pass. <laughs> Representative Brooklyn. Yeah, what do you think about things like this? These are often... Um, Huge money makers for states. Um, I think they're also quite detrimental to a huge group of people. But let's see so, what you so, got to so say. So, from my perspective, one, uh, first of all, I always refer to the lottery as the stupid tax. Mm. People that aren't well educated about the odds of winning 
put their money into it. Yeah. And so too often it preys on the poor people from my perspective, thinking that they're going to get something big. The other concern I have is I hear time and time again of it's going to create all this new money. It's going to let us fund public education or reduce property taxes or other things like that. And really what ends up happening is money gets shifted over and the taxes just still stay there and it supplants other money. Yeah. So it doesn't effectively do what people claim it's going to do. Yeah. Well, we're talking about another tax cut as plus, well. Plus in government getting in the lottery business, preying on people yeah. to get addicted to gambling also is not a good idea. No, I, I, I don't like it. Um, in some somber news, I'd like to shift uh, here at the end of our program to talk a little bit about Jan Graham. Jan Graham passed this last week. She's Utah's first and only female attorney general. She died at the age of 74. Um, a Democrat, um, the last Democrat to win statewide election. Um, she died on Monday night um, of ovarian cancer. And we just send our condolences to family and, and loved ones. And I just have to say that she's a person who stands out to me, especially when we think about what's been happening with our subsequent attorney generals um, in this state. She was really the last attorney general whose tenure was not marred by scandal. Um, tell me a couple of thoughts that you have or, or memories that you might have about Jan Graham. So so Jan was uh, before my time, but, but clearly she uh, set a legacy in Utah in terms of uh, female elected statewide, um, in terms of her leadership. I know she's celebrated, especially on the Democratic side of the aisle and stuff like that. I wish her family well. Yeah. yeah. Appreci appreciate her service. Appreciate her service. And I think in a state exactly as you're suggesting, where we just don't have that much female representation, it's really incredible to ha have the legacy of her and really running that office with such a high level of integrity and really contributing to the well-being of Utahns. Um, you know, before we do that, I guess I just want to say we're, we're kind of heading in here to the very end of the legislative session. Got, what do you a recommend? Couple, couple weeks left. What do you recommend people do to stay on top of the news? Obviously, you're listening to public radio. Where, where are some other places you suggest people kind of follow along? I tell folks to go off to le.utah.gov, as in legislature, le.utah.gov. You can track bills. You can track, see how they're going through the process. When they have committee hearings, you can listen to committee debates. You can listen to floor debate. Pick, pick topics that you care about and go inform yourself. Get, get informed and also reach out to your legislators. I have to say so often people say, I just didn't hear anything about that, especially, um, certainly everybody kind of gets involved on these controversial ones, but kind of on the day-to-day -day stuff, it's good to let your legislators know if you support or don't support something and to start those relationships. Um, I've been heartened by how good people are about reaching out when you are a constituent. So that's le.utah.gov. And I just want to say you've been listening to both sides of the aisle. I'm Shireen Gorbani on the left. I'm John. Dougal on the right. <laughs> and uh, our producer is Anthony Skoma. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>